Roger fucking Williams, author of my favorite book, The Metamorphosis of Prime Intellect. I recently had on Garrett Graff again, and I was very, very sure to tell him that he is my favorite nonfiction author because my favorite book is Metamorphosis of Prime Intellect. My favorite nonfiction book is Raven Rock. But as I was just telling Roger beforehand, yeah, I've always wanted to start a gaming channel just because it's fun. Um, it's, you know, you don't plan it. It's all some of the best conversations you have is when you just kind of end up going in autopilot and you're just kind of clicking and shooting. And you're not really paying attention. And uh, you can't always plan those things for podcasts. And I'm finding I'm doing less and less podcasts that are like joking. And it's kind of just all authors now and doctors. You're getting all kinds of awesome guests, man. Yeah, which is which, hey, which is which is great. I'm not complaining, but there's still a huge part of that kind of uh, carefree discussion that I love that I'm not capturing. And, uh, and it's also, you can't really coordinate people like, Hey, will you sit down for three hours on my podcast? It's a Tuesday night and they're working, but they all game. So I was like, why don't I just start recording that? And, uh, it was originally just called game bullshit laugh. Cause that's what it was. But, uh, we were just trying to think of like, you think you, you're always here screaming, you know, you're a straight white male. And we were trying to think of like a new term. What could just be like the most toxic masculinity term? And we came up with uh, the petro patriarchy. And it's just uh, the patriarchy, fulfill, you know, crushing the world on, on the petro dollar. So we changed the name of the gaming channel to petro patriarchy and the logo is John Bolton mixed with Colonel Sanders. So it's just Colonel Sanders, but it's John Bolton, and it says Petro-Patriarchy. There's no purpose to it. There's no logic to it. Um, but that's what I've been doing on the side, and it's uh, it's been kind of fun. Oh, so that music I was blaring, we were playing that the other night. We got shit-faced and blaring techno, and... Uh, there's this SWAT game called ready or not. And you're supposed to like, you get the most points by like not harming anyone. You want to like zip tie everyone. And we just go full like cartel hit squad. We execute everybody. I mean, I know you, that's how you play these things. Specifically women and children. Like we always go for the kids first. (laughs) Like it's, that's uh, a women and children first, man. Just like on the Titanic, Titanic or the crack house. Listen, (laughs) we're gentlemen. And you don't have to like it, but this is what the petropatriarchy is. We we get dirty so you can stay clean. But, um, yeah, aside from that, um, not a whole lot going on. Mr. Roger Williams, what's up with you, buddy? Well, it's been like 28 degrees the last two days when I woke up. And down here, of course, everyone gets all head up about that. Uh, went to see my dad yesterday to visit for my uh, birthday. Ended up in a hour-long traffic jam oh, on I-12. Truck turned, I'm sorry. Truck caught on fire. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> on the interstate. There were no exits. We have, we have a section of I-12 that's about 10 miles with no exits. And, of course, the damn truck decided to catch on fire right before the final exit where you could Rude. get off. Rude. So when I got there, there was about three miles stacked up. And by the time I actually got past the truck, it was all the way back to the next exit at Robert, 10 miles away. So... That was that was yesterday. <laughs> I didn't know it was your birthday, man. I'm sorry. Happy birthday. Yeah. Well, it's uh, next week. It's the 15th. All right. Well, I rescind that then. 
Yeah. Uh, I was just going up because I, I got to drive 80 miles to see dad. And that was our best opportunity to get together. I got you. So um, hey, let, let otherwise. Me, let me go spit out this piece of gum. Because I think only once before I've chewed gum and it destroyed the podcast. You can't listen to it because it's just obnoxious. <laughs> Roger, tell them where to get Mopey. Uh, yeah, if you would like a paper copy of Tommy's favorite book, uh, like this one, uh, you can get them from Amazon and all the usual sources by just searching for Metamorphosis of Prime Intellect. But I would uh, ask you to go to lulu.com, L-U-L-U.com, since they are the primary publisher. And you will pay the same. The uh, contracts require them to not undersell the other vendors, but they give me a much larger royalty if you buy straight from Lulu. So uh, on the other hand, if you've got Amazon gift cards or it's just easier and you've got Prime, I don't begrudge that. I still get by far the most of my sales from Amazon just because it's so much easier. Uh, although I will say that Lulu has excellent customer service. I have dealt with them now since the aughts. And uh, I've never had a complaint with them. Uh, so that's the spiel about where to get my book, Tommy. <laughs> that must have been a heck of a piece of gum. Well, I decided to just preemptively pee. <laughs> Probably wise. Probably wise, because it's going to happen again later anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah, I had a little. I had a little story that I wanted to tell you uh, from yeah. a couple of weeks ago. Go for it. Uh, I was eating uh, lunch at one of the local uh, bistro burger joints that we have around here, and uh, usually when I'm alone, I sit at the bar so that I don't take up a table. You know? And uh, there was about three or four other people there, and they were talking about the vaccines and mandates and stuff. And since this is one of the most Republican areas of the most Republican state in the country, I was just keeping quiet. And uh, one of the guys finally looked at me and said, you've been kind of quiet. What do you think of all this? <laughs> so uh, I gave him the one minute spiel about why I think that uh, getting vaccinated is, in fact, the wiser course of action mm -hmm. and uh, why I don't think it's all that dangerous, that the risks are very minor compared to the problems it's causing. But on the other hand, I finished. Uh, now that we know where we stand, I know I'm not going to change your mind, and you probably have figured out you're not going to change mind, and uh, the situation is going to persist as it is indefinitely, so we need never speak of this again. <laughs> and he said, I can live with that. That's very good. Fuck yeah. And Fuck yeah. Uh, he, went back, he, went, he went back to his meal, and I went back to mine, and presently he got up and left. And uh, when I finished eating... I called the bartender and uh, asked for my tab, and she said, oh, you don't have one. He bought your lunch. <laughs> I think that's, I think that perhaps boils down what it all is, is we all just yeah. want to be left the fuck alone and just... Yeah. But, I, but, it, but and the way he did it was just, you know, no fanfare. That's not, cool, man. You no, know, it just, just he, he quietly did it and let me find out after he had left. That's, and, that's, really, know. that's really cool, man. I think that's... No, I think that that kind of closer of, but ultimately we're both adults and we're not going to change each other's minds. Yeah. I think that's, and, uh, that's probably, that's beautiful. I, <laughs> um, so that's where we are at the moment. Uh, that's uh, about the most interesting that's happened since the last time we met. Uh, otherwise it's just been mostly work. Uh, uh, Tim Dillon, I haven't finished his episode from yesterday. 
But he was because Joe Rogan sort of like launched Tim Dillon's career into the stratosphere. And so Tim Dillon's obviously like incredibly grateful for him. He also just doesn't care about anything. So he was talking yesterday. <laughs> he goes, you know, Mr. Rogan is, you know, the White House is getting involved. You have artists pulling their music off. You have world leaders tweeting at Joe. Mm-hmm. And I am so jealous that he is still in the news cycle because here I am, a sassy gay man, and I can't get a hundredth of what do I need to do? Do I need to say that all gay people are going to hell? Abortions are wrong? Fuck it. AIDS was good. Cancer's not real. What do I need to do to trend? And it just got me thinking. I was like, I went back and looked at the day he like interviewed McCullough. It's like November 20th. Malone, like December 30th. And I was like, you know, Tommy's podcast could have really benefited from the White House weighing in on me back in July when I did it before. Where's my outrage? I, I would love outrage. Do you know how much that would benefit this podcast if my apartment was firebom- firebombed by Antifa? Do you know how much it would benefit me if, if, if the Proud Boys and Patriot Front came and like stood guard outside my house? That would be, that would be great PR for this podcast and thus Mopey Sales. But no, no, he gets it all. We we get we get shit, Roger. We get yeah. nothing. Well, it's like it has a gravitational attraction, like a black hole. So it's like if you already have all the attention, you get the rest of it too. We should have been. Biden should have been weighing in on my podcast in July. Yeah, you, well, you would think. Apparently, Rogan has something I don't like. I don't know pretty much the same size podcast i don't well you know uh, i think Gat and shay has maybe sixty thousand subscribers and my traffic to the website has been is to is, was yesterday was double what it was on any day before for for five or ten years before he released the his his documentary and that's just a guy with 60k now there's another guy whose channel I watch reliably called I do cars. And every week he takes an engine. He has a, 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 a shop where he parts out uh, cars that he's bought on auctions and stuff. And he takes an engine and takes it completely apart to figure out why it's a core, why it died. And some of them have pistons that are in four parts and holes in the crankcase and stuff. And some are more subtle, but uh, I've just find it really interesting. He just hit a hundred thousand subscribers. And and all he does is aim a camera at himself and take an engine apart every week. <laughs> it's it's you know one of my friends pointed it out. He goes, Tommy. He goes, you're gonna succeed. And I was like, thanks, man. He goes, but you know what's gonna succeed is this shitty gaming channel. He goes, because the universe has a terrible sense of humor. It does not care yes. about the hard work you've put into 700 episodes. You're gonna do something funny on a video game, and that's what. And people will go, oh yeah, no, he also has a podcast, but. Uh, and yeah, yeah. You know, no, it's, the, a, it's a cruel world. The, the formal statement of that is the perversity of the universe tends toward a maximum. Yeah, that'll be it. <laughs> it won't it won't be the interview with the guy that walks on the moon. It won't be the interview with the bioweapons engineer. Not the kid that survived the school shoot. Nope. Mm-mm. Or Richard Rhodes. None of them. <laughs> Critically acclaimed author, still alive. The 27 incredible books. Nope. Who? Yeah. Never heard of them. Guy was personally there for the, the Castle Bravo shot. Coming on again Thursday, Halderman. Yeah, no, no nice. one will. Yeah, no one will know. <laughs> for the third time, he's come. No, no one fucking know. Not, yeah. not a soul. Nobody. 
And you get all of these people like Richard Rhodes and stuff, and they all come on your channel three, four times. You know, it's like they they, they get a whiff of Tommy, and then it's like, this is fun. Yeah, it's it's lighthearted, it's pleasant. You know, you're fun to banter with. Why do you think I've been here all these dozens of times? It's you know, yeah, nice way to spend a couple hours. It's a blast, and uh, so. be sure that none of this will ever succeed in any meaningful way. <laughs> what will succeed? It will it will succeed indirectly. Something else will happen. And I'll be like, oh, no, he also has a podcast. Yeah. And you know what? Fuck it. We'll take it. As long oh, and as I keep looking at is it being like Philip K. Dick. You know, he, he writes for 40 years. You know, he goes through periods of his life when he's literally buying dog food to eat for himself. And, you know, finally, Ridley Scott buys the rights to Blade Runner. And they're making it with all these fantastic special effects. It's, it's this artistic vision that's never been seen before. He's looking at the dailies and and, and the uh, spot tests of the C- yeah, it wasn't CGI, it was practical special effects in 1981, but going, it's like he reached into my mind and, and, and realized my vision on film. And then halfway through the production, he dies. Yeah. No, that's as heart attack. Boom. And now years later, his heirs have to maintain a spreadsheet to keep track of all the projects based on his works now that he's dead. And some people would call that a success. I, I don't. If I don't get to experience it, it was a failure. I don't want some fucking ancestor of mine raking in money on my podcast. <laughs> Fuck that. Fuck those little brats. I'll donate every earn Posthumously, I will bequeath my podcast to Kim Jong-un. I want him to get that. I want him to buy <laughs> Hennessy with the, the profits from my podcast. God damn it. God damn it. It's a cruel world. And because it's a cruel world, might as well just jump on into it and get into the curators. Okay. Uh, as I uh, texted you, uh, yeah. I went ahead and took the opportunity since we had an off week uh, and I had some time. I went through the entire series and decided where the breakpoints would be for the different episodes of my readings to you so that they would be reasonable length. And uh, this will be your part 11. Uh, we will finish book two with part 15. Uh, then parts 16 through 19 will be book three and parts 20 through 23 will be book four. And then there is a coda, a sort of afterward to the entire series, which will be one last reading. That'll be 24. Uh, so that's how many podcasts we have to go to, to get through the entire series, which is about 200,000 words. Um, and since it was originally structured as a, as a series, as a, a serial, like the Saturday morning serials, each part has a little teaser to try and book you in to make you want to come back to see what happens next. But I tried to make it so the better ones are at the boundaries to these longer readings where we're reading five or six of my original episodes at once. So, uh, we're reaching, uh, we're, we're entering a point now in the story where several things are going to kind of be happening at once. So uh, the next couple of uh, our readings are going to be uh, sort of laying background with several things happening. Uh, and then we're going to get to some really dramatic shit before the end of book two. <laughs> Beautiful. Um, and two things. One, I've been a... Uh... I've been uh, peeing even more regularly than normal today. I did it with Dale just now. I went to the bathroom like five times, so uh, I'll probably be using the bathroom several times. And number two, got the dryer and the lawn- laundry whatever thing going. I can hear it. I hope you can't hear it because if you can't hear it, we're, okay, we're good. No, I'm yeah. fine. Beautiful. Um, yeah. 
Um, yeah, aside from that, let's get into this thing. Hey, let me rearrange my windows here then. You can go over here and the source material. Come over here. And that's not what I intended to do. Hit the little X instead of the maximize button. It helps if you tell the computer to do what you actually want to do. Do the thing, computer. Don't make us <laughs> yeah, look bad. Really. Don't make us fucking look bad. You're making us look bad is what you're doing. I know. That's computers for you. Uh, okay. The, the, I was going to say, I was going to fill the, the dead air. The, we broke the 10 terabyte mark on the podcast. I, I knew I should have invested stock in hard drive companies. <laughs> you probably should have, man. You broke the 10 terabyte mark, so that's, uh, that's okay. a thing. And uh, we'll recall that the last thing that happened on our, our last reading is that uh, Jay and Emma came back from their exile, uh, elevating the Prometheans and giving them the full drive to straighten out Earth's government because Earth had stagnated and was being run in a very selfish fashion by a few oligarchs who just wanted to keep the status quo and uh, didn't really care about anything else. So they kind of fixed that with some big dick energy, as you pointed out. So anyway, here we are. This is Curators 2 book, uh, Curators Book 2, Part 7. And it begins 25 years later. So we have a time jump. Quentin carefully followed the directions for approach to CI-1048575, whose multiracial residents had nicknamed it 19 bits for its curator's index as represented in binary. 19 bits was one of the busier spaceports in the galaxy as the home of three separate independent and competing Promethean fold-style drive shops. Although the implausible alibi was unique among fold ships, Quentin didn't bother trying to conceal it when he landed. Landable fold ships now came in a dizzying variety of shapes and construction techniques, and being so small, the alibi was usually taken for an in-system supergravity transport at casual glance. Each of the drive yards was a sprawling complex of low-rise nanite structures. Dirty processes were done in the buildings toward the back, and clean ones up front closer to the trade area where travelers gathered to haggle over purchase opportunities. About once every three months, each yard produced a drive, which was demonstrated on a stand in the trade building for potential buyers to test and inspect. Promethean drives were handcrafted from modules that could be made from nanite-made and relatively low-tech non-nanite source materials, and the modules could be tested and rejected if necessary before being permanently installed on a new drive. They were larger than human drives by about an order of magnitude, but far easier to make, not requiring the kind of planetary effort mankind had needed to put into manufacturing infrastructure. With the Promethean instructions in hand, any group of a few hundred individuals that cared to put in a modest effort could set up a shop to build them. And while they weren't equal to human drives, they were much smaller and performed much better than traditional nanite-based drives. They could produce supergravity to land and were practical for a shipyard to handle in a planetary gravity field. And they held a better level of calibration for accurately making longer range folds. There were now dozens of fold shops across the galaxy making them. They were still inferior to human drives, which were coveted by those races that wanted to make the longest journeys with the minimum of hops. But human drives were also much more rare and expensive. Unlike human drives, most Promethean drives were made by aliens who had never been anywhere near Prometheus or ever met a Promethean. 
The Hyacinth Consortium, which had formed to use human techniques to make supergravity drives for refitting nanite-based ships, ceased operation and basically gave the whole operation and, plan and the planet it was based on to the humans, who were refitting those facilities to make more fold drives. If you wanted a human-built fold drive, you had to trade an account with the Bank of Earth and seed it with credits traded for valuables like refined raw materials. Humans had depleted many of Earth's mineral resources in the era of explosive technological growth. We had also developed a taste for exotic foodstuffs, liquors, and other commodities which were made elsewhere in the galaxy. If you wanted a Promethean drive and didn't have the instructions or want to put in the effort to make it yourself, you showed up at a world with a drive shop with barter to trade. The bidding was fierce, but tended to slow down that rather small fraction of what you would need to get a human-made drive. With three drive shops, 19-bits offered multiple opportunities for a bidder to succeed. It was typical for a buyer's representative to spend years before winning an auction, and rather than wait around, most drive traders traveled the circuit with their own landable fold ships to maximize their short-term chances of snagging a drive, which way they would then market at point profits to buyers who didn't feel like dealing with the circus at the source. Quentin bought into the auction for genuine earth currency, although he had no intention of really buying a drive. He would make a few bids to establish his reason for being there, but he had been instructed not to win. Quentin had also all had a recorder in his pocket, human-made, since our technology was still much better at that than his other sponsors, the witnesses. Two rounds in, he heard what he had been waiting for. Ten skilled workers, the feathered alien said, and the monitor screens, human-built, Quentin noted, showed ten aliens of different races. All have worked at a drive manufactory for at least a sweet year, all young and in good health, all sworn to sweet years of service in exchange for a boon to family or community. This was accepted as the new high bid. Quentin watched things progress until he realized the slaver was very likely to win the bidding. Against his instructions, he stepped in, bidding about a fifth of the price of a brand new earth drive. The slaver was the only one to challenge him, upping the bid to 12 workers, and she dropped out after Quentin went up another 20%. And thus Quentin of Earth found himself the owner of a spiffy new Promethean multiplex folds drive. After the auction, Quentin found the slave trader and made her an offer to trade the drive for all the slaves that she had brought with her, which, which turned out to be 16. Then he crammed them into the implausible alibi and made the fortunately short trip to the witness's world where he knew he would have a lot of explaining to do. The days when Quentin would have had to conceal his approach to Earth were done now that there was a single world government which recognized Emma and me as its royal couple. Still, we had made a chamber in our underground lair big enough to receive the alibi so it could arrive without startling our Tlingua visitors, our neighbors, most of whom still didn't know to just who we are. Quentin emerged from the ship as excited as we had ever seen him in years. You were fucking right, he said, holding up the recorder. You have to see this. Our implants made it possible for us to review the recording wirelessly in seconds. That's appalling, Emma said. Neither we nor the Prometheans ever intended anything like that. And where did you take them? To the witnesses, they were a bit annoyed, but they know I'm young and they have forgiven me. It will be a bit of work getting them all back to their homes, since not all of them know their home world's curator index, but they all have genomes and the witnesses have a very complete catalog for cross-referencing those. I've promised to use the alibi to take them home. Of course, Emma said. But if this is going on here, the first place we sent you to observe, it must be a pervasive problem. I got the sense that everyone was completely cool with it, Clinton said. Standard operating procedure. One slave seems to be 1% and 2% of the value of a human fold drive, about 10% of the Promethean drive. 
Of course, they aren't white slaves by old human standards. They apparently trade their loyalty for some kind of quid pro quo to their families or communities. This is still not good, I said. Do you know what the term of service is? About a hundred earth years, give or take. I didn't have time to pin it down exactly. The translator didn't recognize the nick they used for the world whose year it's based on. This really cannot stand, Emma said. I agree, Quentin said, but what in the hell can we do about it? Yeah, you guys fixed the government here on Earth pretty well, but this seems to be going on all over the galaxy. Just as you had a lot of explaining to do to your new masters, I think we are going to have to do some explaining to ours, I said, and Emma nodded gravely. But first, we need to find out just how the economy works. What are the incentives for the slaves? It doesn't sound like they were using violence to keep them in line, Emma said. It didn't seem that way, Quentin agreed. We could just show up at a drive shop and start looking around, I said. That could get awkward, Quentin said. These guys are quickly getting the hang of capitalism, including being paranoid about their assets. Just figuring out who the indentured ones are could be a problem. But we do know where 16 of them are. The witnesses. And I need to go back soon to start taking them home. Maybe before we go, we could have a talk. The witnesses worked out where they lived. We got the translation machines, yeah, matrices from the curator's library. The witnesses themselves didn't need to communicate with their guests very effectively, but we needed to accurately understand how they had come to this point. When Quentin returned to start make, taking them home, we rode along in the alibi. The witnesses greeted us warmly. Welcome back, the president said. We can't really complain about Quentin spending the money since you put it up, but it was a bit of surprise to have the new guests. Well, I knew Emma and Jay wouldn't put, up, put them up in Terlingua, and I don't think we want this to go public in human space quite yet. All of the workers had had the longevity boost, so they were unlikely to die during their service. But they were all also fairly young, and none of them had reproduced. The first we interviewed was a chitinous biped who wore his mark of the curators on the smooth back of his head. Despite having an exoskeleton, his vocal apparatus was not too different from ours. My people offered to build a hospital for my town, he said when we asked why he had volunteered. And when they build our ship, my name will be included on the plaque honoring its creators. He seemed puzzled when we pressed as to what he personally got for his service. I get to go to a hometown with a fine hospital and to know people who ride in the ship will see my name, he said as if this was obvious enough. He had studied hard and worked for several years as a trainee at a component shop. Those facilities were not equipped to make complete fold drives, but made drive components and trained workers. Their workers tended to work for a few years for experience to enhance their value on the market to the fully equipped drive shops. Our third interview was with a naked male with nearly white skin and primate-like facial features, but much snoutier than humans. He turned out not to know his world of origin. These witness people are figuring it out, he said. If you don't know where home is, how would you have expected to get back there after your term? I probably wouldn't have bothered, but the trader keeps our origin information on record just in case. The shop is supposed to take us anywhere in the galaxy we want to go when our term is up. After all, they do make fold drives, so they have to keep a ship around for testing. You really think they would do that? Just let you go and take you home? He made a gesture which our implants recognized as his species version of a shrug. Why not? Our tenth interview was with a mammalian female who was almost as conversant on fold theory as Emma. As we talked in her native tongue, Emma realized something important. If they had taken you on, how would you work with them? You couldn't possibly be of use to them speaking common, doing theoretical work at this level. Oh, no, she said. Anyone who expects to work in an off-world drive shop learns the special language of drive manufacture. 
It's much harder to learn, but more useful than Galactic Common, since it's the language of those who invented the modern fold drive. Can you speak it for us? We were expecting Promethean, and were stunned when she said, this is the language of the humans of Earth, in accented but perfectly clear English. Book 2, Part 8. The representatives of curator authority met us in the lair beneath our trilingual base. The human curator introduced us. We had never had occasion to have contact with the curator chain of authority before and were somewhat uncertain how it worked. I was chosen to investigate because I was against your elevation, the fox-like male told us frankly. Many of us did not believe humans had the maturity to handle the powers of the implants. And your initial actions caused much worry, although I have to admit your handling of your own world's government problem was surprisingly effective. And I was chosen because I was for your elevation, the scale-skinned female added. The fact that you discovered the fold yourselves argued that we had miscalculated when we decided not to curate you. And your handling of the raiders and civilians was brilliant. Things have been very much the same for as long as anyone can remember in this galaxy, and the changes your people have brought promise to make life much more interesting. I guess I should be going, Quentin said. We had quite forgotten that he was in the room. On the contrary, the fox-like male said. You are now of the witnesses, and even though you are young, they will probably find your report on this informative. We have worked for many aeons with the witnesses, and since they have elevated you, you have every right to participate today. It is not unheard of for curators to recruit helpers who are not of our kind, and we value your assistance. He turned to us. Now tell us of your complaint. So we told him about the use of the parent slaves as currency in the auctions, about the long terms of service, and that the whole thing reminded us of some of the worst aspects of our own history. We have heard other reports, the scaly female said. Right now, there are only about 50 fold drive shops in the galaxy, and so our information is sparse. It is laudable that you recognize that your own history should not be repeated. But this may not be the same thing, the male said. Have you considered now how individuals become slaves and exactly why it is a bad thing to be a slave? Emma and I went slack-jawed at this, and it was Quentin who replied, If you're a slave, your labor is being stolen. You can't choose a different path to make a better future for yourself. That is true, but that assumes there is a better path to choose. He looked at me, Jay, you said your first idea was to visit a drive shop and ask around, did you not? Yes. Then if my colleague agrees, that will be my suggestion. Be frank about your concerns and do not worry that they will be offended. You have accomplished much, but you still have a lot to learn about how non-human civilizations work. He looked at his companion and she nodded. If you are not satisfied with your direct investigation, let us know and we will make another determination. Sir, should I go with them? Quentin asked. By all means. You are part of this and we will probably be working with you for a long time. And with that, they disappeared. I'm not sure I understand what just happened, Quentin said. The human curator was smiling, though. I think I do, he said, and I think you need to go back to 19 bits. So we went to 19 bits with Quentin and the implausible alibi, not as witnesses, not as curators, and not even as the royal couple, but we were most definitely humans from Earth. We'd like to speak with the person who runs your facility, we said politely at the entrance, expecting the usual runaround, but we were surprised when minutes later a 19-bit native came to meet us. The natives of 19-bits have a kind of body covering we had not seen before, which our implants suggested we called pointils. They were apparently an intermediate form between a feather and a scale that resembled a short porcupine quill, 
and each pointer was in a different color, creating a dramatic rainbow effect as he moved. We all agreed later that sex must be a really interesting affair for them. Visitors from Earth, he bellowed. This is an honor. What can we do for the new inventors of Fold's technology? We allowed as to how we were kind of curious as how they were going about their craft, since they seemed to be having some success. This made him flash a wicked grin, which our implants recognized as a friendly smile. He motioned for us to follow him into the facility. It's been a challenge, he said, as we made our way to his office. The Prometheans don't use nanites, and so their instructions were much more difficult to follow than they needed to be. It was the natives of CI-174114 who borrowed some of the Prometheans' tools and developed nanite-based equivalents. It's their instructions that everyone now follows. But just getting a set of directions is still the first bottleneck in building a shop. They're 6,000 pages long, and only machines that can efficiently copy them are made by humans. Here on 19 Bits, the threefold shop share master said. How do nanites make things easier? Aren't the nanites the problems with traditional drives? Nanites are a problem when you make the drive out of nanites, but there are a lot of things nanites can get you cheaply that are really hard for the Prometheans. Standard weights, gauge blocks, some testing machines, all much simpler. That said, we still have to grind our own lenses for the lithographic optical assemblies, and that's a highly skilled labor. Many things like that can only be done the Promethean way. We were wondering about skilled labor, too, I said carefully. It's another bottleneck. Most people want nothing to do with the rigors of drive manufacture, but it's a big galaxy, and we use brokers and labor traders to find people who have the aptitude and the desire to do it. How do your brokers find them, and how do you compensate them? The manager looked at us. Let's have a drink, he said. We all took small snifters, and he poured us a local concoction that reminded me of a pretty good brandy. I recognize your friend here who isn't saying much, he said. He bought our last drive, then turned around and traded it to one of our labor brokers for all the workers he had brought. Seemed odd at the time, but then now I realize you're human. We all sipped. None of our workers is what you would call a slave. They all worked hard just to vie for the privilege of being considered for service at a fold shop. There's nothing in all the galaxy that carries the prestige of making one of these drives. There's nothing as lasting or as important. I myself work under an agreement you might consider a form of indentured servitude, and I do so gladly. There's nothing more worth doing in all the galaxy, at least for those of us who aren't human. Who gets the profits from your drive sales? Right now, almost everything is plowed into more development and research. We've learned that from your people. There are always improvements to be made. But after a good sale, we distribute bonuses. We have feasts. Some of our people have hobbies which are unheard of elsewhere, such as racing flyers or building intricate models, and their bonuses make it possible for them to acquire materials. But who actually owns the shop? He smiled. Such a human question. We all own it. Your people have apparently experimented on occasion with the idea of workers owning their production facility, but for us, it's the only way we would consider operating. And of course, the nanite economy means that compensation isn't just that important to most of us. We're guaranteed the means to live just by the fact that we're alive. The most important compensation most of us receive is our name engraved on the little plaque that's embedded on each drive. And those signatures are all the same size, the junior apprentice raw glass wrangler being the same size as mine. Then why is the term of service so long? Quentin asked. Why should it be short? We get nobody who really knows very much about what we do. We have to train them ourselves to do everything, and we make a point of training everybody to do everything. The glass wrangler will progress to grinding lenses, to doing the actual lithography, to quality assurance, to module assembly. One day he will be flying the test ship. 
as we get new workers to fill in for those jobs she abandons, one day she will be qualified to start her own shop. That takes a while, though. And what if she gets tired of it? That hardly happens. But if it did, as it does infrequently, we would send her home. We have no need for a worker who doesn't love the work. Would it be possible for us to speak to a few of your people to get a sense of this? Of course. When I look at the precision you must maintain to make human fold tribes, it just makes me crazy. How can you do it? Where we have hundreds of people, you must have tens of thousands. And correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't part of the answer something along the lines of let him who will not work starve? Yes, Quentin said. I am open to any criticism, but I fail to see how anything we are doing here is worse than that. He got up and picked a book off a shelf that appeared to be mostly whole technical manuals. Your civilization is one of the great accomplishments of galactic history, but it was built on slavery. Your Greeks and Romans, their great civilizations couldn't have existed without slave labor. Your United States would not have formed and invented manufacturing without an agreement that slave labor was acceptable. Same for the Germans who invented your jet engine and extra atmospheric rocket. One could make a strong case that your entire civilization is built on coerced service because to this day you don't permit the nanite economy to exist on Earth, and if you can't find a paying job, you have no home or means to feed yourself. He handed Emma the book. It was printed on Galactic Common, entitled A History of the Humans of Earth. Where did you get this? Emma asked. It was written by one of the exiles of Seville. I had to trade two skilled apprentices to one of the other shops to get it. As I mentioned before, the only machines that can copy a book efficiently are also made by humans and rather rare away from Earth. If we promise to return with five more copies for you, could we borrow this for a day? Emma asked. Of course, that would be a considerable boon. We'll be back. The Curator's Book 2, Part 9. A History of the Humans of Earth by the Civilian Exile, Z. As excerpted by King Jay and Queen Emma of Earth. Prologue. I will never see my home world again or my family. I will never reproduce. My world has been imprisoned by a machine that makes space travel impossible, and our sentence will only be lifted long after I am dead. It took several years for me to understand that this is my new reality and will never change for me. Given this newly pointless existence, I decided that it would be worth devoting my remaining time and energy to understand the humans of Earth, whose singular talents and nature brought this ruin upon my people. Emma, he seems to have left out the part where his people blew up to their own economy to try to destroy two other worlds. Chapter 1. As recently as 150,000 Earth years ago, there were at least four species of humans. Besides modern humans, who are now the only civilization-capable species on Earth, there were the Neanderthals, who are known through copious fossils, the Denisovians, who are known through a few trace fossils and genetic analysis, and at least one more known only through genetic analysis. These subspecies were mostly separate but capable of interbreeding. It is not known exactly what happened to the others, but most researchers, including humans, seem to agree that the modern humans are probably genocidally killed all the others. It is also unknown why the curators chose not to curate the humans, but many researchers seem to think the decision was made in this time frame. Jay, well, he does have a point about the curators. Chapter 3. The first human civilizations left a noticeable effect on modern human culture were the Mediterranean Greeks and Romans. While there were extensive earlier civilizations and extensive later ones in other parts of the world, 
These all failed to do to the conquest to conquest or mismanagement, and their works are largely forgotten until rediscovered by modern human archaeologists. The Greeks came first, and their civilization barely rose to the level of having any kind of central management. It was always more of a collection of independent city-states. Despite this disorganization, the Greeks came up with ideas central to modern human thought, such as the idea of democratic rule, the use of measurement and mathematics to understand their world, and formalized drama and storytelling. Greeks were the first to work out the size of their world and the distance to its stabilizing moon. The Romans came later, and their much more centrally organized imperial culture overran the mostly allied city-states of Greece, as well as a lot of other nearby cultures. But while they conquered the Greeks, the Romans had a fascination with Greek scholarship, which they expressed by copying much of what the Greeks had done into their own conduct. Being uncurated, humans did not have nanites or their productive capacity, and supporting a large population required a great deal of stressful work. In both Greek and Roman cultures, this was mostly done by slaves who were humans threatened with torture or death if they did not obey those who had wrapped them in chains. This was not unique to the Greeks and Romans, however. It's just that humans have the best records of those cultures because the most writing and stories survive. It was simply not practical to have anything resembling a civilization larger than a primitive village with the technology of the day unless slaves were employed. Jay, what happened to the Chinese? Chapter 4. It is impossible to go further than the inspection of human development without examining their numerous religions. Unlike the curated, humans had no idea where their world or their own species had come from, and they responded to this by inventing a bewildering array of pretend stories to fill their sense of ignorance. <coughs> there were hundreds of these explanation frameworks, mostly incompatible with one another and a source of much conflict when they came into contact with one another. The Greeks had a typical pre-modern framework in which different sentient supernatural beings were credited with various natural phenomena. The Romans basically stole their entire system, renaming the gods but leaving their alleged duties and features intact. Other systems, such as the Egyptian, were flexible, allowing that any such deity one might imagine might have a literal existence. Humans called these syncretic religions. A more modern religious framework rose to prominence as the Roman Empire was itself collapsing, which posited that a single all-powerful being had created the entire world. Being unaware of, for example, the fact that there are multiple types of infinity in practical mathematics, their ideas on the nature of this being are quite ridiculous. But many humans to this day continue to believe the stories and practice the rituals they suggest. Religion remains a prominent feature of human thought and expression, despite their contact and participation in galactic civilization. Chapter 6. It is difficult to overstate the extent to which human technology, lacking curation, has been driven by murder. The great ages of prehistory, stone, bronze, and iron, are defined by their tools of murder. As the survivors of the great European plagues began to rebuild, those methods would proliferate much more quickly. This is not to say that human technology has never been about anything else. Humans have a saying about plowshares used for their primitive form of agriculture, and swords used for murder and war that suggests one can be reformed into the other. But new human technology has almost always been about war, and increasingly it hasn't had a complementary positive function. Chapter 10. The era of which the humans call the Renaissance, as new civilization arose following the collapse of the Roman Empire, is curious in that their new technology was not directly driven by war. This is not to say that they didn't make war in this era. They made furious and long-lasting wars that lasted multiple human generations, but they made those wars with the same tools, often even inferior tools, to what the Romans had. 
The engines of the Renaissance pumped water to make agriculture and mining possible and were driven by water wheels and then steam. The steam engines were the first human technology to be incompatible with nanite construction, requiring airtight seals at high temperatures and elaborate lubrication and fueling techniques. Of course, with nanites, such machines are unnecessary for other reasons. This is our first point of evidence that the curators might have made a mistake in not curating the humans. Of course, as soon as it was practical, humans turned these new engines to the purpose of war. At first, the new war machines, cannons and firearms powered by chemical explosives, were more dangerous than their users than their extended victims. But the humans excel at perfecting technology, and in due course, their fire weapons were more reliable and deadly than anything ever seen in the galaxy, with the possible exception of a miscalibrated fold drive. Emma, having seen what a fold drive could do myself, I am not impressed. Chapter 11. Humans' own self-histories tend to lurch from war to war and from battle to battle without much context for the underlying reasons that these conflicts occurred. I've tried to overcome this tendency in this account, but there is one individual who must be mentioned because he changed war itself as well as making sweeping changes in the politics of his times. Throughout most of human history, the primary means of compensating warriors was to allow them to loot the belongings and resources of their victims. This created several practical problems. The warriors might be more interested in loot than fighting strategy, a problem that brought down the insurrection of Boudica against the Romans. Warriors might also be unenthusiastic about attacking a target that didn't have sufficient loot to be of interest, a problem the Romans themselves faced at the point of their greatest expansion. And the civil, civil, civilians of a land that had been subject to this looting might not be the most enthusiastic citizens of their new ruling empire. This all changed with the ascendance of the French leader Napoleon. He paid his warriors a regular wage, as was customary in other human professions, and rewarded their battlefield successes with medals and titles. These tokens turned out to be much cheaper than actual loot or pay, and within a generation, every military organization on earth had adopted the practice. Chapter 14. The United States of America was founded by two groups of humans, one of which believed that human slavery was good, natural, right, and justified by their religion, and the other which believed slavery was at best dubious and at worst immoral. Having organized together to defeat the colonial power that had established and then exploited them, it was inevitable that they would come into conflict. The American Civil War was the first war to demonstrate the true power of technology for mass murder. If it had been the, first, last, the last such human enterprise, it would be unique in the history of the galaxy. Other human wars had claimed more victims and gone on much longer, but none had ever claimed more victims in such short period of time, often because of the base stupidity of leaders who did not realize what they were asking their soldiers to do against tools of war they had never seen. The American Civil War inspired a frenzy of inventiveness, which had only been glimpsed in the inventions of modern manufacturing during America's War of Independence against their colonial power. Because it was so short, the war did not see many of its new inventions find practical use, but that would change. Chapter 16. It is hard to think of any single fact about human history more telling than that they have had two world wars, unless it is the fact that they can't even explain why the first world war started. There was apparently an assassination of a minor aristocrat, and after a fallout of agreements and treaty terms, a few months later, men who had been baking bread and tending smelters found themselves in trenches trying to drill holes in one another at a distance with the most advanced distance-killing machines the galaxy had ever seen. The event humans call World War I introduced submarines, aircraft, and incredibly fast automatic guns into the formula of war. All of these machines involved forces, temperatures, and chemical gradients that nanite technology could not withstand. 
World War I introduced portable armored fortifications, aptly called tanks. And at the end of the war, over 15 million humans were dead in fighting, and at least another 20 million because the war had destroyed their relatively crude infrastructure of survival. Chapter 17. After a world war, what is there to say about a second world war? At least this time they knew who started the hostilities. Two powers on opposite sides of the world determined for different reasons to become hegemonic rulers. Had they succeeded, as in the American Civil War, it seems inevitable that these two powers would have turned on one another. As it was, two powers that defeated the would-be hegemons turned on each other for entirely different reasons after the war. By the time of World War II, Earth's industries were mostly being run by hydrocarbon fuels burned to drive heat engines. These industries are vast and dangerous, but they are also universally seen as necessary. Tens of thousands of ships, each the size of a substantial town, plied the seas of Earth. Thousands of primitive aircraft plied the skies, dropping explosives on inhabited cities. The art of destroying inhabited cities would be honed to a craft in World War II, starting with the use of firebombs and culminating in the development of the nuclear weapon, a device releasing the energy of strong force attraction, the atomic nucleus. It was not possible to channel such energy as it was released as an open explosion. The temperatures and pressures created by such a device are beyond the capacity of any defense made of mere matter to resist. It is worth noting that the industries created to create nuclear weapons are staggering in their extent. One can perhaps understand the scale of the industries that processed oil and coal to create the vast amounts of controlled energy which human civilization of that age required, but the enterprise they called the Manhattan Project was only ever intended to destroy human cities, and post-war attempts to make the whole technology more acceptable largely failed due to the expense and poisonous effluents created. Emma. Also, I used one of those nukes to save a world they were trying to destroy with full drive, so is it okay to say fuck that guy in the commentary? <laughs> Chapter 20. Without access to full technology, humans made their own access to space. Chemical propulsion should have been inadequate for them to reach space, but by clever engineering, they made it work. The Saturn V rocket is a stunning accomplishment of crude non-anite technology. Standing taller than most fixed structures in the galaxy, it launched itself into the air and into orbit, shedding tanks and becoming smaller as it made its way to Earth's stabilizing moon. Humans also became better than most of us at building remote-controlled spacecraft, eventually exploring the rest of their solar system without actually visiting in person. And when humans began to develop their fold drive, their theorists understood the risk of folding a planet into its sun, and they put their first experiments on remote-controlled spacecraft so that if they guessed wrong about the unknowable field constants, the planet that got folded into their sun at least wouldn't be their home world. Emma, if by better than most of us, you mean better than any of us? It was my people who had the misfortune to detect the humans' crude fold experiments. We did not understand just how sophisticated their attempts were since we had never met an uncurated race. Emma, sour grapes much? We, of course, gave them the constant so they wouldn't have to take any stupid risks. Emma, we had already done the initial experiments. They saved us maybe two months. For this, we have been thanked by being exiled. Emma, all right, enough of this bilge. I can't believe you're going to give them five more copies of this, she said. We made a promise, and like it or not, this is how the rest of the galaxy is going to see us. Suppressing it is not going to work. If we've learned anything from our own history, we should know that. Chapter 19, you know. She threw the book at me. We can't let this be our record. I do have another idea, I said, and I smiled mischievously. 
Curator's Book 2, Part 10. Before we returned to 19 bits, I took the history of the humans of Earth to a 24-hour copy shop and ordered five copies. It was spiral-bound, but the clerk looked at it quizzically. Where did you get this, he asked. I don't think metal spirals have been used in forever, and the dimensions are all weird. Can you just take it apart and put it back together? Sure, this should just bend like that, he unwound the spiral. Just put the copies on the closest standard size you have, uh, both the paper and the binding, I said. He flipped through the pages, which were printed in Galactic Common, and he said, wait a minute, was this printed by an alien? <coughs> sure was, I said, and I let him scan my payment chip. An hour later, we were ready to leave, and we found Quentin and headed back to the implausible alibi. The drive ship foreman looked at the uh, stack appreciatively. It would take our best machines a month to make these copies, he said, and in much poorer quality. So did you read it? Oh, yes, we all said. He gave us the grinny smile again, and you copied it for me anyway? We wanted to know what was being written about us, and the deal's a deal. Well, we don't get much hard information out here about your people, but he obviously has a bias against you over his entire exile situation, even though you only built and didn't emplace the fold inhibitor. We're glad you see that, I said, but we had another proposition that might be more useful to everyone. You said that the Promethean instructions were the bottleneck of getting more drive shops set up. Yes, a group of sufficiently talented individuals can spin up a shop on just about any indexed world, but they're much too long and detailed to transmit via the microfold, and making a copy takes even our best automated machinery several months, and copies of copies quickly get illegible, so there are really only a few worlds in the business of making new ones. You said your shop share a reference set. Could we see it? Of course, I can't let you take it off world, though, like the history guide, since it's too important and it's a shared resource. <clears throat> Naturally. It turned out to be at one of the other drive shops, and our host had to vouch for us so we could get in. The instructions were stored flat in 20 volumes, each of which was about 10 centimeters thick. 6,000 pages. We really don't need them very often now that we're producing. But when you're setting up a shop for the first time, especially with inexperienced personnel, you need every one of them. And once in a while, something goes wrong, and we need to refer back to them. They're very detailed. How many drive shops need to be set up out there? Well, there are over a million indexed worlds and at least three million registered capital fold ships, all of which are now obsolete until we can retrofit them. And of course, this technology makes much smaller and more numerous ships practical, so I would imagine most worlds would want a shop if they could get one. There could ultimately be a market for tens of millions of drives. If there were more sources, the bidding wouldn't be so fierce and they would be a lot more accessible. We have much faster ways to copy books than the photocopy method we used for your history. If we want to make a really large number of copies, we have big presses that can make a million copies in a matter of days. Would you allow us to photograph all the pages of your reference so that we can print a copy for each of your shops and then for every indexed world? How would you ever do that? I held up my cell phone. With this, the feature here is the lens of a camera. But how would you store all the information? Oh, this device can easily do that. It has a memory store capable of holding hundreds of billions of bits of data. Incredible. Then how would you clean up and re-register the pages? We've had software to do that automatically for a long time. Well, our colleagues would have to agree, but I see no reason why they wouldn't. This is an extraordinarily generous offer. Why are you making it? Because we'd rather be known for something more constructive than that silly history, Emma said. The instructions were bound so that the volumes could be taken apart to use subsections for on-site reference. 
Instead of using the cell phone, we went back to Earth and got a dedicated camera and a copy stand so that we wouldn't have to clean up a lot of distortions. Then Quentin, Emma, and I spent a week and a half methodically photographing all the pages. Back on Earth, Emma and I donned our royal couple costumes and appeared before the ruling council of Earth. I explained the situation. So with our help, the Prometheans figured out how to build a lower quality but much cheaper landing-capable fold drive. The natives of CI-174114 figured out how to make it even more easily with their common nanite-based tools. And now that information sits locked in storage rooms like medieval manuscripts that have to be laboriously copied and a million worlds expect to wait tens of thousands of years before they get their chance to see them. With a much more modest effort than those races put out, we can make their instructions available to every world in the galaxy in a single generation. And what is our motivation? Someone shouted. Very little is known about Earth out in the galaxy. We are widely known for making an impossibly compact fold drive that nobody else can duplicate and that very few in the galaxy have ever actually seen in action. We're known for having prevailed in two interstellar wars, which is two more than anyone has seen in aeons. We're known for creating the device which was used to exile the civilians, a device nobody even knew was possible. And a history of Earth written by a civilian who was cut off from his homeworld by the exile is edited to make us seem warlike, vindictive, and selfish. Across much of the galaxy, we are known only to be mysterious and frightening. There is little out there to contradict this impression because even with the microfold, its low bandwidth means that information travels slowly across the galaxy. Even though these are not our plans, we can contribute something that no other race can to the efforts of their creators. We can show that we shared our knowledge, that we recognized and encouraged the accomplishments of those who followed in our footsteps and are now willing to use our resources to help them help everybody. We can make sure that every world in the galaxy has a 6,000-page book precious to those who hold it, celebrating not our own technology, but what we inspired others to make. And every cover will bear the news that the humans of Earth spirit printed them in the spirit of peace and benevolence. Emma and I had never really asked the council for anything except that they try to get along since we unified the government of Earth. When the vote came to fund our proposal, there were only a few holdouts. I thought it sounded better in the original JFK, the human curator said as he caught up with us later. More Peace Corps than moon landing, though, I said with a laugh. <clears throat> and a laudable goal, which you might be surprised to find. We thoroughly approve. Congratulations, you've actually found something worth doing, which is beyond our ability as curators. We could probably manage it if we wanted to badly enough, but really our technology is not printed and pointed in the same direction as yours, and it would take us centuries, if not millennia, to duplicate your mass printing technology. Your fold drives are billions of years ahead of our best effort, but we beat you to the printing press, Clinton boggled. Indeed, whatever mass industries like that our parent species may have once had have long since been dismantled or destroyed in Nova. Our existence today is largely nomadic, and our largest installations are the craft that continue to curate new worlds around newborn stars. Well, that's different. There is an area of concern you should think about, though. Assuming you print your million copies of the CI-174144 volume, how do you plan to get them to all the worlds in the galaxy for which they are intended? Um, fold ships, Quentin said. There aren't a lot of fold ships, and few of them can land. Most of them ply fixed routes called orbits, depending on their homeworlds and returning after a fixed and departing from their homeworlds and returning after a fixed number of destinations. Some effort has been made by our children, with some under the table help from us, to make sure every world in the galaxy is visited at least once every 10 or 20 years. But the galaxy is a thick tangle of these orbits, often distorted by the rotation of the galaxy itself and political entanglements. 
Most of these ships have to be loaded and offloaded by surface landers of limited capacity, and books are heavy. You will need a plan to get the book from wherever you publish them, Earth or a colony with more and better paper resources, to all the worlds in the galaxy in a reasonable time. You have the means of publication, but the second problem is, distribu is distribution. We had not really thought of it that way, Emma said. We figured full drives instant faster than light travel, voila! Maybe we should have considered distributing tablet computers instead. Most of our children would find Earth computers more amazing and worrisome than your full drive. That would have been a much more disruptive move, which we would not have supported. And there would be no technical support for your machines 100,000 light years from here. The user interface of a tablet is a much more limited resource than that of a book that can be unbound for use in multiple locations simultaneously. And all of our children understand books, since writing is part of our curation. Then we just get them the books. We can make them more cheaply than tablets anyway. <clears throat> hmm. Not if, not if we make the books right, Quentin said. These guys will be using them for centuries. They need to be on good quality, low-acid rag paper. You should probably find a colony to make the paper that isn't having Earth's ecological problems. Well, that's great. We make the damn books and we fly them out ourselves if necessary, Emma said. It will be far more complicated than that. Even if all human ships were dedicated to the project, it would take you millennia to visit and drift each index world. Fortunately, you already have a resource which will make it much easier. Emma's eyes rolled and I felt new knowledge pouring into my curator implant. The superintelligence of our implants will make it practical, if not simple, to find an optimal solution to this problem. The traveling salesman, Quentin said, given a swarm of destinations, find the shortest path to visit all of them, and you guys can solve it over the scale of the galaxy? It's a little different, but very similar, I said, as the information seeped into my consciousness. The orbital routes are fixed, so the options are not as great as the general version, but it's also going to result in a big logistical problem. Parcels will have to be handed off many times to be relayed to the final ships that will break them into individual sets and deliver them to destination worlds. We can help with that. It's not beyond our discretion to make sure that the transfers go correctly, and we can help you to plan the routing. But you are going to have to package your wares very carefully to make sure people who have never had contact with a human mail delivery system get them to where they are supposed to be going. Roger, let me use the restroom. Okay. You can keep reading or give, give them some factoids. Well, uh, the um, next uh, bit of story switches to a slightly different thread. So this is a good point for Tommy to take his break. Uh, we have one more of my Reddit episodes to read as part of this reading, and uh, that will be TPC curators reading uh, number 11.
actually. I just printed this, I think. But you realize your own notes are wrong. Okay. We have two more of the original. Nothing like dead air. Turn off you the gotta air. go, you gotta go. Had to turn off the I was almost I was finished, and I was about to sit back down and I realized I had to turn the air conditioner off. It is so cold. <laughs> All right, sorry. All right. So uh yeah, we have uh two more of my original good. episodes as part of this reading. You're good. Keep so, going. All right, so here we have book two, part eleven. We met the gaggle in the warehouse full of rolls of paper. The aliens gasped when they realized the scale of the place. The rolls were stacked on pallets, each roll about two meters wide and two meters in diameter. The warehouse was over 100,000 square meters, and it was full. Emma and I were in our king and queen outfits to give the official tour. Welcome to Earth, Emma said, and specifically to the Punjabi Printworks, where we are printing the galactic edition of the Promethean Fold Drive Construction Guide. There were about 20 aliens in the group, most of them journalists. This is a lot of paper, one of them said. Actually, this warehouse only holds enough paper to print about one of the 20 volumes in our full print run. <clears throat> We're continually resupplying from the human colony of Sao Paulo, and it will take about 40 trips with one of our largest fold ships to supply the entire print run. We motioned to follow and led them through double doors to the print works. It was a loud environment, so I motioned for everyone to put the uh, headphones we had provided on customized in advance for those whose head might not be human in geometry. Can everyone hear and understand me, Emma asked. Being curators, we didn't actually need the prop microphones we were wearing, but we didn't want to show off too much. Everyone made the gesture equivalent to nodding for their species, and Emma pointed out one of the presses, which was being loaded with one roll of paper while another spun out. This is one printing press. It's printing an eight-page section of the manual. This one here, in fact. A check copy was posted on the side of the press. It will use up one of these rolls of paper every six minutes. So that it does not sit idle, the lift truck operator replaces one roll and threads it while the other is being consumed. The machine switches over on its own when the live roll is exhausted. While we watched, the forklift operator threaded the roll he had just delivered. And sure enough, when the live roll spun out, that one started spinning up. The forklift operator took the empty core with him as he drove off. This facility has 20 of these presses. They're complicated machines that need a lot of maintenance, so we generally have 15 going at any given time. We have eight lift truck drivers to keep them supplied with paper and an automated ink supply fed from tanks on the roof. These are rotary presses, which roll across the paper to deposit ink from etched type blocks, which have to be curved to the radius of the print drum. We walked on under the ribbons of paper flying overhead, moving much faster than the eye could follow. Above us, the ink that was just printed is drying before the pages are folded. Emma said. A little later, the ribbon of paper was swallowed by another machine, which spat out a neat succession of folded and bound pamphlets, which were automatically stacked onto a pallet. Here the paper has been folded into sections we call signatures, which will be stored until we have enough of them to print a complete volume. We passed into an even larger warehouse where pallets of signatures were staged as far in both directions as the eye could see. 
This warehouse is 10 times the size of the paper roll warehouse, nearly a million square meters, Emma said. In order to get to the bindery, we have called an electric bus because it's nearly four kilometers from here. Any questions? I thought I understood the scale of human constructions, one of them said. To make something as novel as your fold drive obviously takes works on a scale we had never seen. But one of the first things we learn in curation is to make books, and what you're doing is to make something so familiar. Books is astounding. Do your people ever print on this scale for other reasons, another asked? Actually, we do all the time, Emma said. The population of the Earth is about 800 million, so it's not unusual for a million or more of us to want a copy of something popular. Many of us favor books over computer displays. They don't need power, they don't break down, and you can make marginal notes in them. You write in your books? Oh, yes, we do have libraries where books are shared, but most of us own books, too. It's why we invented printing on this scale. We reached the bindery where the signatures were being staged for assembly into complete copies of Volume 3. This machine gathers the signatures, aligns them, and prepares them for the binder. Normally, this step would also involve gluing the pages together, but your guides need to be separable so you can take sections to different parts of a fold jaw shop. So here they are pressed together and trimmed. This machine was enclosed but made impressive chopping noises. What emerged were neat stacks of paper that had been trimmed of their folded edges and punched for loose binding. These passed a short distance into another machine where they emerged with covers and screw stud binders holding them together. And here is the finished product. We have only one binding line specialized for this run, and as you can see, it produces about one book per second. So we could theoretically finish the run for each of the 20 volumes in about 12 days. But in practice, these machines can't run continuously. They need maintenance and adjustment, so it will take about 20 days per volume. We expect the whole project to be to take about a year and a half, and then we will start working on distribution to the, every index world in the galaxy. We finished up at the little auditorium where we took questions and observations. When you told us you were going to print a copy for every world in the galaxy, we thought it would be the work of generations, one of them said, and others made gestures of agreement. The idea that you can do something like this in a year or two, that is going to be difficult to convey to our audience. None of us have ever seen machine works of such complexity on this scale. Are there other facilities like this one? <laughs> there are many facilities like this. Without nanites, this is how humans learn to do almost everything. For us, this facility isn't even that exceptional. It's just the one that won the bid for the job. And why are you doing this? Your economy requires exchange in kind for all transactions. So what are you getting out of it? Emma looked at me, diplomacy time. Like our full drive, our printing industry was invented to solve a problem you don't have because you have nanites. We would have liked to give you our full technology, but our experience with the hyacinth showed that you just don't have the underpinnings we were forced to develop to make it possible. Instead, you have nanites, and for you, work is a privilege instead of a survival imperative. But the Prometheans started with our ideas and showed that there was another way to make fold drives, still superior in performance, but within your grasp to produce. We were happy that others could benefit in a real way from what we had learned after all. But then we visited 19 bits and learned of your problems getting a copy of the instructions. But why should this be a problem? We had solved that too. And again, we can use our skill to help the rest of the galaxy. We are not all driven by greed and power lust. You would have to ask the curators why they deprived us of the gifts that made your critical path so much easier to walk. But whatever their reason, it, was, it turned out their denial was really their greatest gift to us. And this project is a small gesture on our part to return that gift to you. The journalist returned on the electric bus and Quentin stayed with us. After they were gone, he said, you know, if you weren't already king of earth, I'd suggest you might run for president. Just be careful about visiting Dallas, okay? JFK wasn't bulletproof, Emma said. 
Emma took Quentin's hand and we folded back to the implausible alibi and took the ship back to Terlingua. The printing operation was well in hand, but we only had a year or so to figure out exactly how to get our gifts to the worlds for which they were intended. That's a great line. Curator's Book 2, Part 12. One year later. In order to make best use of their warehouse space, the print works had agreed to fill our order in three runs of 350,000 volumes. It would have been a little more efficient for them to print all the copies of each volume at once, but then we wouldn't have been able to start shipping until we had the whole thing complete. As it was, we were loading the giant human nanite fold ship Reliant for its first delivery mission. We were watching a high-speed label printer spray labels at an application robot faster than the eye could follow. Emma set her cell phone to force flash and shot a picture of the label tape. The one that she caught said, Delivery, ship, 462933 Mark 8, stop, CI 399428, ballot 2 of 6, stack 1. Destination, CI 305094, ship, stop, 8 of 40. One pallet held six full volumes, each consisting of two plastic-wrapped stacks of books. This one would be applied to the second of six pallets bound to the eighth ship built by the people of World CI 462933. That ship's orbit would carry it to 40 worlds, the eighth of which would be CI 305094, where the stack this label was applied to would be presented to whoever the planetary leadership designated to retrieve it. The giant fold ship Reliant was, like most large human fold ships, named after a famous spaceship from science fiction. Throughout most of the galaxy, though, it was just 1742660 Mark 204, the 204th registered ship built by the humans of Earth. Reliant could easily carry the entire print run. Since it was only carrying a third, it was also carrying a sizable rotating contingent of scientists and tourists who were taking the opportunity to see parts of the galaxy rarely visited by humans. As we were contemplating the distribution system, our old friend, the human curator, popped in behind us. You know, you don't have to appear behind our backs anymore, I said as we shook hands. Old habits are hard to break, he said. I bring special news. Is there some place quieter where we can enjoy some fine alien liquor? Although we had not gone to lengths to disguise ourselves, hardly anybody we dealt with day to day on the printing and distribution had guessed that we were its royal couple. We showed the curator to an office whose door said quality assurance. There's been a bit of an argument among our people, he said, as he poured a smoky dark brown liquid into shot glasses. Not everyone is happy with your promotion, and there is a ritual we are all expected to witness for which there will soon be an opportunity. Certain of our people did not want you to show up, but we have finally prevailed. Silently, he made connection to our implants and gave us a set of coordinates about 60,000 light years away. What sort of ritual? Oh, you'll see. It's quite dramatic and very important to us. This is sounding a bit weirdly mysterious, Emma said. The curator smiled randomly. You'll understand why I don't want to spoil it for you when you find out what it is. You really should get going, though. You only have a few days to make the event. Fortunately, the whole printing and shipping operation was well in hand, so it wasn't unreasonable for the QA people to slip off for a little vacation. Our destination turned out to be a small asteroid, which had been shot through with tunnels and rooms to make a fairly spacious space station a few miles across. We appeared on the bridge, and two crew members greeted us warmly. The crew were a diverse lot of species, no two quite the same, and their leader was very dinosaurian in profile. So I see our friend found you. Welcome to our greatest work. He didn't tell you what this was about. Uh, he didn't tell us what this was about, Emma said. No, you're supposed to see it for yourself. 
He gestured toward a large window. There was a sun-like star illuminating the scene and two worlds, one a little less than twice the diameter of the other, separated by about 10 diameters of the larger of the two. Both worlds were very young, still glowing with pools of lava from impacts and volcanoes. A double planet, Emma asked. Not yet, the leader said. Emma sucked in her breath. You're making a moon? Very good. Of course, after the trouble, your people went to learn your own moon's origin. I guess you might, have, you might be able to figure it out. This is the final engineered collision, which will create a stabilizing moon for this new world. Once we observe it and record how it worked out, our work will be done here until the next team shows up 50 million years or so to introduce life. And meanwhile, we'll go on to another star system to do it again. How often do you do this? We've been working on this system for about 20,000 Earth years. We scout a lot of systems look, looking for the gas giants to settle into a good harmony. If they don't, fixing that is a bit even beyond our means. If the gas giants are looking correct, we get to work on the inner system, making sure those worlds are properly harmonized too. We expect the system to expand by a factor of about two before the orbits settle out, so we're a bit closer to the star now than would be comfortable for life. But there's always a bit of randomness in this kind of operation. We won't know exactly what this world will be like until the spectacle is over. At this point, there's nothing we can positively do to guide it anymore, so we will just watch to see how it works out. How do you engineer the inner system? With an amplifier built, we can fold translate fairly substantial planetoids, a large fraction of an astronomical unit. We use this to move things into the orbits where we want worlds to form and with collisions calculated to cancel out inappropriate orbital velocities. Did you did this at Sol? We did this everywhere. There is complex life in this galaxy. The earliest worlds we made this way are no longer life-bearing because the stars have run their own lifetime and expanded into red giants or gone nova. We've done this at least 20 million times since our ancestors made the technique practical. This station has been our tool of that art for as long as any records can indicate. We don't know exactly how old it is, but it's been at least 6 billion years since these tunnels were carved. The planetoids don't seem to be moving, I said. The deceptive slowness of a mighty event seen from a great distance, Emma said. Yes, they will impact at the larger world's escape velocity, about 10 kilometers per second, and it will take over an hour for the collision to unfold. The event will begin in about 30 hours. He was, of course, using curator units of speed and time, but our implants translated them seamlessly. Are we in any danger here, I asked? Oh, no, it will take over a day for the fastest ejector to reach this point, and by then we will have completed our observation protocol and left the system. So what do we do while we wait? We have quarters in case you want to rest, and our mutual friend left us a bottle of some liquor from your world he promised was quite good. A day later, the two globes were nearly touching. Their mutual motion still wasn't obvious, but there was now a countdown being maintained. There weren't a lot of crew members. It turns out you don't need a very large crew to do engineering of solar systems, and several of them were out in smaller flyers preparing to observe the collision from different angles for later analysis. Our host produced the bottle which had been left for us, and it turned out to be Johnny Walker Blue Label. Well, that's a suitable toast for the birth of a world, Emma declared. Excellent. As the countdown moved into the single digits of seconds, our host stood and raised his glass. Emma and I followed suit. We are curators, our host said. Everything we do either leads up to this moment or follows from it. This is the thing for which we exist, the thing we give to our galaxy and our children, the greatest gift that we can give to life itself, a new world. As if on cue, obviously he had timed it. The viewport was bathed in blinding white light. 
The immediate contact point was not directly visible, but a cloud of ejecta was being blasted from the expanding ring of contact between the two spheres, and it was both white-hot and illuminated by even brighter light from the collision point. This is indeed a fine liquor, our host declared. Emma and I joined in the toast. You know, after a couple of hundred years, I have never met a curated race that wasn't affected in mostly similar ways by ethyl alcohol. Oh, that's a gift, another gift from those who curated us, our host said. When we return to this place to seed it with life, those seeds will contain the same genetic codes with naturally evolved on our original ancestral world. Some of those introduced later in the process will spur the development of nervous systems, which have similar properties. Our susceptibility to other psychoactive chemicals tends to vary, but nearly all of us can appreciate the effects of alcohol and the art of its creation by relatively primitive methods. Outside the ring of debris was expanding, but not that quickly. In a couple of minutes, the smaller world's ejection jet will appear. What? At these levels of force, rock is compressible, and the shock wave moves through the world at many times the normal speed of sound. When the shock wave reaches the far point from the impact, a jet will form. If the collision was head-on, it would be a neat linear jet. But since the smaller world is being sheared apart by design, the jet will become a fan. That compressed rock will be freed from the confinement of more material ahead of it and leap into space. Sure enough, all this happened within a few minutes. I've seen too many science fiction movies, Emma said. It's too damn quiet. If you could hear it, our host said, you would be dead. Oh, I know that, Emma said. Seeing it for real is a real privilege. Our host put down his glass. Actually, it is, he said. You can have all of our powers. You can be talented and carry out other aspects of the great work. But until you have seen this, many of us would say you aren't really curators. We do many things other than this, and many of those things are very important. But this is the thing that is done by nobody else, and without which our galactic garden would be inevitably sterile. He poured us another round, and we watched the fireworks. In a few hours, a ring of material had gone into orbit, while the bulk of the smaller world's mass had merged with the larger one, spitting up its rotation. Now the ring would coalesce into a moon, and if our hosts had done their job right, tidal forces would begin to lift the moon into a higher orbit while slowing the larger world's rotation and trade. But we didn't wait to see that. After a few hours, the engineering station folded out to a safer distance, and we went back home to see how the publishing operation was going. And that is where I planned to end TPC reading 11. We will resume next time for reading 12 with part 13, as I originally published it on Reddit. I, I love the imagery of the planets colliding. That's, that was absolutely incredible. Just the, the slow motion not slow motion. I mean, it's moving fast, but yeah, at a distance, right? A monumental event at a distance appears to be moving kind of at a glacial pace. But yeah, the ejecta, the the expanding ring. That was incredible. That was that was yeah. probably one of your best descriptions. Well, thank you. Yeah, the the. I feel smart when you were talking about the magma jet. You know, but because it's shearing in my mind, I was like, oh, so it's going to, and you're like a fan. And I was like, yes, in my mind, I imagined, check like, one, bitches. That yeah. was beautiful. That, like that, I need to see that, like, I need to see that visualized. I need to see that animated. Funny you should mention that because uh, I don't know if they're still playing the same show, but at the California Institute of Science, which is the Natural History Museum in Golden Gate State Park, uh, one of our visits, they had a planetarium show. They have the world's first completely digital planetarium. 
it's a planetarium, but it's basically a digital display. Yeah. And they did an animation of the collision between Earth and Thea that created the moon. And the, the two worlds collided and the whole thing just turned white for five seconds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've, I've seen uh, I've seen collision videos before, not not even the like, asteroid ones, but yeah, like moon sized or like Mars sized bodies colliding. And it is so weird because even asteroids, you kind of it still has that like it has like an intuitive kind of, you know, it still is kind of like a baseball like hitting sand. Mm-hmm. You're like, yeah, there's the thing and it comes in. But when it's two worlds colliding, it's it's really it's not intuitive, you know. I know. They're, and and there's a lot of that that goes on even without the curators intervening in early forming solar systems. Yeah. I mean, it's a real billiard ball table out there. Yeah. Um, it's just that the curators make it happen deliberately so they can set up where all the planets are going to end up and what their properties are going to be to form a stable system, instead of letting it be random. Yeah, if you ever like watch one of those animations, it is weird because they're just it's not even that they're moving slowly. It almost looks like they're just like kissing. And then yeah. it's like and then there's bright light and you're like, where did that come from? You know, it's it's like watching like a it's like watching like a like a car crash like like a testing facility. It's like watching one of those at like a thousand frames a second. If you yeah. didn't if you didn't know that you were watching it at a thousand frames a second Except it's yeah, except it's just real time. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's like, it's like intuitively you see a car and you're like, yeah, there's a car, and then all of a sudden it's like, why is that metal hood crinkling? It shouldn't do that, right? (laughs) But that, yeah, Um, kind of the same thing with, or not, not quite the same. You ever seen simulations of galaxies colliding? Yes. Yeah, those also. It's like not at all. At least for me, it's like not at all what you think it would be. Yeah, well, the th- the thing that blows most people's minds is that uh, m- almost none of the stars are going to collide. Oh yeah, no. They're... So it's like they go right through one another. That's the weirdest thing. A hundred billion versus a hundred billion, and, and statistically, not a single one of them will touch. But that's how far apart the stars are. I know. I know. It just it starts <laughs> to fucking boggle the mind. You know, and it's <clears throat> you know, con- you know, I obviously I don't need to explain to you how much I love conspiracies, but like. <laughs> Something like the curators, it's like it's kind of like an easy conspiracy to introduce because it's, you know, it's like the brain in a vat hypothesis. It's like, well, yeah, you could never disprove it. So that's kind of like a bullshit thing. Right. I mean, you know, uh, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. But that being said, just as a thought exercise, it doesn't seem like that that odd to me. I mean, just looking at our own interaction with even like third world nations and like us doing like proxy wars or us cultivating endangered species. Like it doesn't seem that yeah. weird that maybe this is happening. Yeah. Where, where the idea came from when I started writing the series. In fact, originally it was just a single standalone story. And my wife told me you ought to write more about this universe. Cause you know, have a lot, you're going to have a lot to say about it. Yeah. Um, and it was that most of the uh, stories in humanity. Fuck. Yeah because it's about humans being <coughs> great and all that, not the asshole wusses that we were in Avatar. Uh, this demands that you have a galactic civilization for us to interact with to show that. And a lot of it is us stomping around being military and superior to everyone else. Some of it is about being cleverly diplomatic or culturally uh more powerful or uh, having a better tolerance for environmental extremes or foods and stuff like that. But all of them, 
assume a range of other aliens for us to be compared to. And so this was my answer to how to reconcile this with the rare earth hypothesis, which I find very convincing that says there probably aren't a lot of worlds in the galaxy that have complex life forms like us that you could walk up and have a conversation with. So that was the answer to that question. And then the rest is figuring out, well, if we assume that, then what does it imply? Obviously, these are stupidly advanced beings. They've been doing their thing for billions of years. And so what does that mean? And uh, it was a total lark when I had the curator just disappear into thin air Mm -hmm. in front of J&M back in the early part of book one. And I really had no idea how it had done that. I just wanted to do something really impressive that would uh, show this fighter pilot research scientist that you're not, you don't fuck with us. Yeah, we the, can do stuff you can't even imagine. The mic but then I had to <laughs> like disappear into thin air yeah. without any of the adjustments you do for full travel. Yeah. And so, but then I had to figure out how he did it. And that, creates more implications. And so the, a lot of it was following that. Uh, and I'm kind of astonished myself at how far I went with that because the uh, I wasn't thinking ahead. In fact, on book one, I was very deliberately not thinking ahead, even to the next episode. I would not even start on the next episode until after I posted the previous one. And then like, you know, I was posting generally on Saturday afternoon and I wouldn't even start thinking about the next episode until Monday. Yeah. And then I wrote most of them on Tuesday and Wednesday. Yeah. So for book two, I was thinking a little further ahead because it was starting to get hard to hold all the strands together, uh, but not that far ahead. Um, the uh, We're about to start. You, you notice I like to do this thing like I did in Mopey where I've got two arcs going on at the same time and mm-hmm. I bounce between them. Well, we're about to start bouncing between the publication arc and the being helpful to the galaxy arc and the uh, Emma and Jay learning how to be curators. Because now that they've seen the final engineered collision, which is kind of like the trip to Mecca mm-hmm. that curators have to make if they want to be considered seriously curators. Uh, now they're starting to get interested in what other duties and uh skills that they might need in order to be serious members of this club. So they're going to be doing some of that. Uh, and they're going to take on another project after they get the full drive guide published, uh, where they're kind of helping the curators out on another side project. Uh, and interestingly, that involves more shit being blown into other shit in outer space, which you'll probably find dramatic and interesting. But, uh, yeah, there's a there's some pretty neat shit that's uh, about to start happening in book two, uh, and and book two is mostly about humans. You know, book one was about humans figuring out where we stood in the galaxy. Book two is about humans making a place for ourselves actively mm-hmm. in the galaxy, and book three is going to be more about actually facing off against the curators as an adversarial presence that we have to deal with. Um, and book four will be about winning. <laughs> yeah. it's. I do like the, but even just this general idea of the curators, not even from like a, is it possible or probable? Cause I think it is again, mm-hmm. just from our own, 
you know, as much as I don't believe that the, the reason why I, I always defend an argument mm-hmm. of like, if aliens came and like manipulated events on earth, I'm like, I'm like, I just look at what we do in third world nations with politics, with radios, you know, what we've been doing since great book. Uh, yeah. uh, I think it's by Timothy Weiner, uh, legacy of ashes, a history of the CIA. I mean, just yeah. from, just from that alone, you, you would have no basis to say that why wouldn't aliens manipulate in us? It's a technologically superior yeah. form manipulating things at a lower level to see what they want. But I also think of like, you know, it's it's like, um, you know, people having like children or something or like the idea of like God, it's like at a certain point you almost just want to see what free will does. Like you can help them along, mm-hmm. but it's also like Dr. Manhattan when he gets tricked by Ozymandias and uh, with like the tachyons and he Ozymandias tricks him and it's momentary. He like tricks him for like three seconds, but he, he's not even mad. He was like, thank you, Adrian. He's like, I forgot the delight of uncertainty because he had become, like a, <laughs> cause he had become a God. So whereas Ozymandias is like, I tricked the God. The God was just like, Oh, what a refreshing Good job. Yeah. Yes. What a nostalgia that, and then he goes on to just squash him anyway. But like, but like what else would, Cause you know, once you've kind of hit the ceiling where you can do any, you know, get rid of aging, mm-hmm. get rid of death, suffering, you can just enjoy whatever you want, any life form you want. And you can do, have all the sex you want, drink all the alcohol you, you can do everything. Right. What else would you do? But kind of, you'd almost become like a, a parent like entity and be like, mm-hmm. let's see, like, let's get surprised. Yeah. We're about to learn a lot more about how the curators <laughs> go about doing these things. Yeah. Uh, because we're going to watch Jay and Emma get how to be curator lessons. And part of that is going to be how they exercise their influence on developing uh, life forms and, and planets and so forth. Um, so, yeah, and part, of, and part of what's going to develop is, of course, the curators have been stagnant for a very long time themselves because they've reached a, a level of development where further development just doesn't seem to be worth bothering with. Uh, and that will end up biting them in the ass. But Now, uh. ultimately, do you not have to conclude that by this same logic of the U.S. manipulating or Soviet whatever in, in, you know, block nations, that's how I can conclude. That's where that's where I draw the point of, okay, maybe curators are real. You then have to follow that step again. Is there an even higher God tier entity that is finding pleasure and watching the curate? Now it's becoming the grandparent. It's watching the kid <laughs> create kids. Yeah, there uh, there won't be in this series. I'll go ahead and spoil that. I'm not going to go uh, to that well. Uh, but yeah, uh, another way of looking at it, though, too, that uh, might be worth thinking is instead of looking at it as like the way the U.S. interferes in other countries, look at the way that uh, the European powers interfered in other countries during the 19th century, Imperial including ours. Sure. Oh, sure. And what happened to them? Yeah. Decline. <laughs> yeah. So the, the powers of this era are the entities that were created by the powers of the last era who then went on to excel and take the place of the powers of the previous era. Yeah, because you kind of look at Great Britain and France and it's like they're clearly they still have intelligence agencies. They have nuclear weapons like they're sovereign, but they're almost quaint in comparison to like 
the million, mil, military industrial banking pharma complex that is the U.S. hegemon, right? We're just like, mm-hmm. ah, yes, Great Britain, good chaps, good chaps. Yes. We'll, we'll nice shoot dog. you from nice sp- doggy. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll blow you, we'll we'll vaporize you with a particle beam from orbit. But like, you know, we like we view China as an okay. We're like okay, we fuck with them, but we we view Great Britain as we're like ah yes, you know. It's again, it's it's watching, it's listening to an old song and being like, oh yeah, I remember that. That was good. That was nice. Yeah, that was nice. They're, they're buds. We yeah. we tolerate them. Meanwhile, we're whipping around in the fucking tic tac out in Area Fifty One. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's... Enjoy, enjoy your nuclear weapon. Uh, to, don't think about actually using it or anything, but you can brag. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, no, no, yeah, yeah. No, no, and, and we'll still pretend that we're scared. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, nukes are definitely the most dangerous thing. Oh, yeah, no, you got it. Oh, yeah, yeah. you guys got us by the balls, too. That's definitely the apex of weaponry. <laughs> we haven't invented anything new since 1945. That's it. No, no, you've got it. You've got the gun pointed <laughs> at our head, too. Oh, yeah, no, we haven't been wargaming mutual assured destruction for six decades. You got us. He got us, <laughs> you know, it's, but yeah, so eventually you get, you get usurped, you get overthrown. Yeah. And, uh, that was actually the, uh, oh, was the race in Babylon five, uh, <coughs> the, uh, they were named after the nearest star. What was that? Proxima Centauri. Right. The Centaurians, so the, the yeah. uh, were an old and decadent race. And they were uh, at the at the end of the Babylon Five series, were in the uh, process of losing their empire the same way, yeah. just because they were old and and stagnant and not innovating, and the races that they were trying to uh, dominate were and were gradually breaking free of their control and uh, learning to uh, push back. It, yeah, particularly the Narn who were like, like their, you know, really their oppressed uh, race that they wanted to colonize. And uh, they had a full-on war, which at first the Narn were getting their asses kicked. And uh, then by the end of the series, it didn't turn around. And it was becoming clear the Centaurans were going to become the second race, the second-rate power in this part of the galaxy. So... Complete side note. So... Whereas on, I think I've told you every Sunday I clean, and it was. Mm-hmm. Good. I remember I did end up calling my mom after I last spoke to you. I was like, "Should I?" I was like, "I only have bleach." She was like, "Don't do that. You're gonna get sick." She was like, "Just go get normal cleaner." And I was like, "Okay, good." Roger was right. Um, but you I mean you know how like every day I've got the the ten hard drives right here, right, the hundred terabytes, and I swap all the, I put all the podcasts on there at the end of the day. Once a week, I take my couple hard drives that I keep in like a waterproof bag. I take those out and I do those every Sunday. And those are the ones I offload. So now I have, I put them in the shock because these aren't shockproof. If you knocked over the table, those are all destroyed. So once a week I do, I do the four like rubber hard drives. And then like once every six weeks I do, I do the deep, the core, which is like the <laughs> titanium encased EMP shielded safe inside of a safe like 19 layers of protection and it's great. It works. It's, I mean that uh, fucking this department complex will burn down and then there, and then there'll be a coronal mass ejection and a flood. I'll be long gone. Those will still be around. It takes about 20 minutes to get all the, the six hard drives out. It takes about 20 minutes. I mean, truly 
not of nonstop unzipping, unwrapping. It takes like an hour and a half to put it away. And <clears throat> it, this happens every month. I do it on the first or I do it on the last day of the month. Now here we are on February 6th. It's all still sitting out there on a table <laughs> and I got to put it away. And I don't want to do it. But if I don't do it, it completely negates the purpose of having it. <laughs> yeah. It's like, like having the black boxes open in the cockpit of the jet. I, I know. It's, <laughs> and I look at it and, I'm, and I'll start to like bitch. I'll be like, man, there's so, and I'll be like, I have to cut myself off. I'll be like, no one is making you do this. No one's even suggesting you do this. No one even put the thought in your head. <sighs> I can't tell whether, I kind of want to record it just to show people like what it is. Yeah, that would, that would probably be fun. I think that would be kind of interesting. But then part of me is like, does that also negate like OPSEC? And then I realize like, no one's, I'm not the NSA. No one gives a shit what I have. Like I'm not. I'm the not, information on that is the same as the information on your easy, more easily accessed drives. Well, that's, that's what I told my, well, that's what I, that's what my investor said to me once. I was like, yeah, I was like, maybe I shouldn't be talking about it so much. And he goes, I mean, literally all of the data on there is on BitChute. Rumble. Yeah. You, I mean, you truly can just Google. You can just Google. <laughs> it's all over the world. You can just Google. You, it's like, Tommy, you've gone to great lengths to make sure it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a weird... Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Uh, uh, something else I had wanted to read. I didn't sure. want to break up the story to do it, but uh, after the episode where they uh, read excerpts from the civilian's uh, Sour Grapes book about us, yeah, uh, the very first comment that guy is literally the definition of a poor loser. It's incredible how this has managed to irritate me on so many different levels. Well done. Also, can we see some other chapters of that book, please? <laughs> and so I replied, wait, as irritating as this is, and believe me, I had to get into a really strange zone to write it. You want to see more? I'd like to see more. I think that'd be, <laughs> that'd be a cool appendix. This comeback was, yeah, I want more reasons to hate the filthy Xenos. But more seriously, I think it's amazing how specifically and accurately you managed to portray an alien looking in and getting completely the wrong idea of how human culture works. And I want more. Well, I, actually, no, I did want to point that out. I did want to point out there was actually one part. There's a Alan Watts, the philosopher. He's got a lot of great books. Perhaps my favorite book of his is called The Book. And it's just him like towards the end of his life you know, being involved in philosophy and religion and professorships all over the world is he really tried to give like a, you pop into existence right now and are just observing life on earth. Like, what do you conclude? And he, he kind of looks at it as like, you'd look at like a biology course and you'd conclude that we are a population of tubes with an entrance and an exit right? Protosomes and deuterosomes or whatever the fuck the early life forms were. We have a bunch of extra stuff, arms, legs, eyes, Mm -hmm. phones, but ultimately we're tubes who consume matter to create more tubes. And we try Mm -hmm. to dominate other tubes. And that's really about, that's about it. (laughs) That's about it. We like to prolong the length of our, of our tube life. But ultimately, it's all about making more tubes. That's it. It's just it's a series of tubes, right? But yeah, that's what kind of makes me that you kind of did. That's what reminded me. I meant to make a note of that. Thank you for bringing that up. Is 
I think your uh, description of World War One from like a, a third party was probably like, yeah, you had like bakers and guys that operated machinery and all of a sudden one day they just started digging trenches and started trying to drill holes in each other at a distance. <laughs> but that's, I mean, truly, if you were to just strip away nationalism, strip away the fervor of war, don't even call them guns. Just yeah. they started trying one day, everybody, millions of people dug a bunch of trenches and just started trying to drill holes in each other at a distance. That's mm-hmm. World War One. From an alien perspective, who doesn't speak yeah. the language, that's World War One. Yeah, and one of the things that comes up uh, at a couple of other points in the series is that the aliens do not understand nations uh, because we are the only species in the galaxy that doesn't have a unified planetary government, and they simply don't understand how that works. Yeah. So, you know, to, you know, to them, they, they like you said, they don't understand nationalism because to them, nations aren't like, a real thing that they can relate to. Yeah. That, yeah. How can that be that important? Yeah. Yeah. So that colors a lot of it. Um, yeah. But uh, it's it, part of that though. It's, it's like the uh, humans are fucked up speech that I gave in that and Shay's yeah. documentary. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I don't know. I think, I think I love it. I think you've done a brilliant, brilliant part. Again, it's, I'm not really sure how much my criticism's worth because I'm a fan of you. Again, it's like it's like when my mom tells me I have the best podcast. And thank you, mom. My mom also <laughs> thinks I'm the most handsome man in the world. And hey, love to hear it. Shout out, mom. But I'm also aware of like you know, maybe I need to get some more criticism from other people. So me sitting here fucking sucking your dick, going, "This is the best." Like, I also <laughs> I also love your work. So we might not be getting anywhere. It helps that you're not the only one. I've, I've had a Good. few other nice comments. So, Good. Uh, Good. Yeah. And and even the people who don't like it uh, generally admit that this or that uh, is well done. They just think that it's nihilistic or something. You know, they just don't agree with the whole tenor, but, which I understand. I mean, I, I think there would be something deeply weird uh, if nobody had a negative reaction to Prime and all that. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> it would make me wonder even more about humans, actually. Well, I remember the first time I read it, I was like, this is the most fucked up book I've ever read. And then, like, going back through it another time, I was like, oh, this is brilliant. It was like, it was like four years apart. It was like 2016, like August 2016. No, not quite four years, because I had you on, like, early 2020. But yeah, it went from, like, fascinating, fucked up, to going back to it, I kind of realized, I'm like, oh, this is the most fleshed out kind of neutral. You don't really have an investment in what the un- in what it is. It's just this is what it probably is, right? It's just that kind of yeah. old. It's like the, the war gaming of like uh, Cold War first strikes. It's just this is what it is. This is we're going to have 20 million deaths. They're going to have 80. That's technically a win. Just yeah. Detached. This is what it is. That's my that's my point on it. So go out and buy the fucking book, goddammit. <laughs> These people, Roger. We're already in a February. We're gonna start turning up the heat on them. We we gave them January off. But uh we're gonna start sending Dale yeah. out on operations. <laughs> I don't wanna do it, but I'll fucking do it, dude. Yeah, have to have your uh yeah. No vaccine uh passport, but you have to have your copy of Moby. <laughs> Listen, I'll, I will argue against vaccine. Pa- Tommy, you're a complete hypocrite. You're against vaccine. You just see me on a podium running for office. I'm like, how can we let these filthy rats into our places of, of our places of commerce if they haven't read Moby? 
<laughs> I'll take over big tech and start censoring anyone that talks about it. Like you've been fucking accused of misinformation against Roger Williams. And I'll be like, I don't know, I should have like the King's stamp on it. Well, as always, Roger and I eventually float out into just disillusioned, deranged rantings. So with that, we'll wrap this one up as our brains slowly <laughs> melt. And uh, we will resume on Sunday next week. And um, Roger Williams. Thank you very much, sir. I'll text you the episode when it's up. And then until uh, next week, Godspeed. Thank you, my dude. Recording Take care, stopped. everybody. Peace.